Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. This is a show that aims to interview leaders from a range of performance disciplines from the tactical performance space to help you improve your performance at the individual and organizational level. I just want to say, guys, welcome back to season four of the show. We'll be chatting an all-star lineup of guests for this coming season, all working to high level within the tactical space. First of all, if this is your first time listening, welcome to the show, guys. I hope you enjoy the show and you go back and check out our back catalogue of some amazing guests we've had on, which we hope provides you with some interesting insights into the readiness and wellness within the tactical space. As I mentioned, we hope to provide a resource to our practitioners working from the military and first responder organisations. And for this, we ask one simple favour, and that is this. If you find value in the show, and if it gives you a different insight or perspective, then please share the show with your friends and colleagues. We're a very small podcast and we've grown organically through word of mouth. So please help us to spread the message and get this information out to a lot more people. Now we're going to kick off season four by chatting with Dr. Oliver Hamlet, where he's also a member of the Applied Psychology and Human Factors Research Group. Oliver has studied psychology for over 11 years and has six years of experience conducting research into human factors, the majority of which focus on dynamic high-risk environments such as helicopter search and rescue operations. In early 2021, Oliver completed his PhD exploring the non-technical skills utilization of offshore transport and search and rescue helicopter crews, the findings of which were used to develop novel human factors training mechanisms for helicopter pilots, known as Helenaut systems. The Helenaut systems have since been recognized for their substantial impact by academia and industry alike. His research has been used to develop a taxonomy of factors which influence non-technical skills in the sector. Oliver is passionate about furthering the relationship between academic research and real-world practice, and alongside his human factors consultancy, continues his research to identify and train the skills which facilitate high-level human performance. So in this episode, we and Oliver chat about what non-technical skills are and their importance to performance, the development of the Helenaut systems, positive and negative markers within non-technical skills, as well as the development and future research around cognitive readiness. Good evening, Oliver, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Right, no problem, Oliver, and uh, let's give a special thanks to uh, former guest Andy Bell for putting us in touch with each other as well, dude. Yeah, I know, isn't that? It's very interesting to think that we both independently sort of uh, got in touch with Andy, who mm-hmm. put us in touch with each other, and we're in the same city. It's very interesting across the world and then back to Aberdeen. I know, it's crazy, dude. Both of us doing our own thing here in Aberdeen, and then just to take someone from Australia to put us in touch with each other. So, <laughs> so. yeah. But, um, like, obviously, from what Andy said about what you're doing over and then having the opportunity to chat to you off air, you know, I definitely wanted to get you on the show and just chat to you in more depth of, you know, some of the work you've done and, you know, or uh, building into as well. Um, you know, and for anyone who's not aware of uh, me and Oliver, you know, we're going to put aside our crosstown university rivalries for one night and <laughs> just uh, be civilized with each other. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Prepared to set aside just just for one session. Just for one session, mate. It's all good. But obviously, Oliver, I've had the opportunity to chat to you, get to know you a little bit, dude. And anyone who hasn't come across you and the work you're, you know, you're doing, can you just give us a bit of a background of where you started out and where you're currently at? Sure. Okay. So, um, I guess to to go back to the very beginning, uh, I've studied psychology for uh, over 10 years now, actually. I left school to study psychology at college. Um, from there, went to university and started studying there. And I think like most psychologists, um, or certainly most psychologists now, 
my interests were really in the clinical domain. So I was very interested in mental health and uh, things of that nature. And as I progressed early on in my undergraduate degree, um, I became very interested in business and, and how psychology could influence business. And, um, and naturally from that, uh, I sort of awakened an interest in uh, the field of human factors. So I uh, became very interested in human performance, what uh, leads individuals to perform to a high standard, uh, what sorts of factors degrade performance. Um, so over my undergraduate, I sort of uh, started very interested in clinical psychology. Towards the end, became very interested in human factors. Um, and from there, uh, I did a, a master's degree with uh, several uh, helicopter operators in, the, in Aberdeen in the UK. And then that naturally transitioned into a full length uh, PhD. So now I've just in the last couple of months finished the PhD uh, and I'm currently working, I guess, for myself in a way as mm -hmm. um, a human factors consultant as part of Axiom Human Factors. And really, I guess Axiom is about. I'm still trying to find my feet with it, really, but the projects that I've worked on thus far and the projects I will be working on are mainly to do with uh, taking a lot of theory from academia and translating that into uh, practice. So I think a lot of people have a huge amount of skill in academia and many people have tremendous experience in the real world. And I think where Axiom comes in is my experience is applied psychology. So I can take what I know from academia and act as the conduit of that into industry. So that's a little uh, background into myself. That's awesome, dude. That's an awesome background, dude. And first of all, you know, Congratulations in completing your PhD as well, dude. It's it's a long process and it can be a, a tiring drain one's moment. So well done on getting that done. Thank you very much. I'm I finished a, a couple of months ago, but I'm still catching up on sleep. I feel like over over years you just lose, you know, months worth of sleep that it all comes crashing down on you at the end. But uh, starting to starting to recover finally. Definitely, dude. Definitely, and it's it's great to hear as well. Uh, and you know, throw back to Andy Bell there as well, saying about just that bridge between academia and industry and taking the positives and, you know, from both, both camps and trying to apply them as well, because obviously both have their shortcomings with regards to some of their methods and stuff. And it's just trying to get the best out of both there, which is awesome to hear, dude. So obviously yeah, absolutely. you're saying, you know, very much more clinical minded, and then you started to make that switch more over into human factors and that. So what was it? Was there a specific moment that started to spark that interest within that human factors element for you? Yeah, I, I, there were there were a couple of aspects. I had studied business alongside uh, psychology in the first two years of my undergraduate degree, and I had some experience with clinical shadowing, mm -hmm. um, and I enjoyed the the clinical shadowing. But one of the uh, questions that came to my mind is that um, basically considering if you know clinical psychology is about you know meeting people and with with mental health issues, let's say and returning them to a place of normality or something that we perceive to be a normal mindset. Um, conversely, I started thinking about, okay, well, what does it mean to take someone from normality and to bring them to a highly effective mindset? So I started thinking about those sorts of things. And, and I really thought that while I have huge respect and admiration for everybody who operates within clinical psychology, um, I really wanted to see what sorts of uh, input psychologists could have into bringing people up to that next level of effectiveness. So peak performance. Mm -hmm. 
And that's essentially where uh, I couldn't get my head away from thinking about skills and, and high performance skills. And naturally that led me into looking at non-technical skills um, and meeting, you know, my, my PhD supervisor, Dr. Amy Irwin, who uh, I think I probably approached her for an internship when I was, um, you know, uh, very naive to, to psychology in general. And I think she probably thought, well, this guy knows absolutely nothing, but I'll take him under my wing and teach him a few things. And here we are, you know, seven years later, I think. Yeah. Nice, dude. Nice. And then obviously developing under uh, Amy, I'm guessing that was for your, your master's and then into your PhD. So side of things there as well. So, let, you know, you're saying with the, the, the master's and the PhD, we started to break into working more so with, um, you know, guys within the, the helicopter industry within Aberdeen um, from our conversations, you're saying search and rescue, but also within the oil industry and that as well. Was that a pre-planned project or was that something Amy steered you towards there? Oh, that was, uh, that was definitely Amy steered me towards it. So uh, originally my undergraduate thesis was on uh, non-technical skills, but looking at them in an office environment. Mm -hmm. uh, now, traditionally, you'd probably look at these sorts of skills in a very high risk uh, environment or well, not a very high risk environment, but something with, you know, a high threat environment. Mm -hmm. So the, the undergraduate project was interesting, um, but, you know, certainly not groundbreaking work. And it was really Amy who uh, said, you know, look, we have uh, all of these industries around the place in, in, you know, Scotland and Aberdeen, you know, you've got the fire service, you've got things like that. So why don't we look at these non-technical skills in something uh, slightly more dynamic? And from there, we approached a helicopter operator in Aberdeen. And they were thrilled to to have us for a master's. They hosted us and very kindly hosted us for that master's project. And then from there, they sponsored the PhD. Mm -hmm. But yeah, definitely uh, owe it to Amy uh, that we are where we are. Yeah, for sure. Decent, decent dude. And obviously you mentioned there a little bit over about, you know, non-technical skills and how they apply within regards to more austere environments within different organizations. So uh, for the guys listening who may not be familiar with that, you know, what, what, would, what are you defining as non-technical skills and why are they important within the job itself? Okay, so non-technical skills are, they are essentially the social and cognitive skills that an individual uses to complement their technical capabilities within a role. So we all use non-technical skills, but uh, as Rona puts it in her book, and Rona's really the guru on this stuff, Rona Flynn, um, the best practitioners consistently use non-technical skills to a high standard. Mm -hmm. So these are skills like situation awareness, being aware of what's going on around you, comprehending what's happening, uh, decision-making. So selecting appropriate options um, all the way to, you know, as I mentioned, interpersonal skills, social skills, like communication, being clear and uh, keeping closed loop communication, things like that um, to leadership and teamwork. So as I said, these skills, make you more effective in your role. They make you safer, but they make you more effective and efficient. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so essentially those those are non-technical skills. Okay. okay, dude. And then obviously with the work you've been doing within, um, you know, pilot, like helicopter pilots in the helicopter industry up here in Aberdeen, you create, is it, I'm saying this correctly, Helenauts, is that correct? Yeah. So uh, yeah, the Helenauts behavioral market systems. Okay. So if you just talk to us a little bit about Helenauts then, so where, where did the concept come from? And, you know, is this 
is this something quite new or is this like building on previous researchers in there with regards to Shona and Amy? Sure. So uh, Helenauts, as I said, it's a behavioral market system. So probably to give you the story, I guess, a behavioral market system is a structured framework for assessing these non-technical skills. Mm -hmm. So a behavioral market system is normally tailored very specifically to the role that's being assessed. Uh, it outlines the non-technical skills, uh, various elements associated with each non-technical skill relative to that role. And within each element, you have uh, positive and negative behavioral markers. So examples of behaviors that the practitioner is doing well and examples of behaviors that might indicate they aren't performing to a very high standard. So Helenauts builds upon previous research. This isn't you know, something new. Behavioral market systems have been around since the early 90s, perhaps even slightly longer than that. But Helinots is very specific to the helicopter role and certainly brings in some more novel concepts such as cognitive readiness, which I know you spoke to Andy uh, in depth about. So aviation, uh, many operators still to this day use a system called Notex, which um, was really, I think, a landmark behavioral marker system that was developed in the late 90s, early 2000s by mm -hmm. Professor Flynn which looked at the non-technical skills that aviators use and broke them down into four behavioral categories. Um, and this system was quite widely adopted. I think uh, operators sort of tailor, when I say operators, I mean uh, companies, aviation companies, operators adopted uh, this system for their CRM training purposes. And when I say CRM, I mean crew resource management training. So the modular training of these non-technical skills. Uh, these operators adopted the system, some tailored it slightly to their to their own needs, but uh, certainly in my experience from speaking to many operators, it was until uh, very recently uh, a, a, a widely used system, it perhaps still is very widely used. So Helinots isn't something that, uh, it's not a tool that, you know, is, is, is totally novel, you know, it is a behavioral mark system. But what is novel about it is uh, these slightly unique aspects to very dynamic and uh, resource limited roles like search and rescue. Okay. okay. So obviously, you know, developing uh, Helenauts, and you're saying there's a, there's a no tech you were saying was the, the previous um, non-technical non skills like behavioral system within that as well. So how's that built? How's that um, progressed on from no tech then? Or is it taking a slightly different spin from things there? So all behavioral market systems may look on the surface to be very similar. And I think this is quite deceptive, especially for someone who might be looking in from the outside and mm -hmm. not really considering the research behind it. Certainly non-technical skills are generic. So um, you, you perhaps wouldn't have a role that didn't use leadership in a team environment, but the ways in which they use leadership may vary. And I think that's very important to grasp that not while we all use non-technical skills, we might not use non-technical skills in the same way. And that's really critical. Okay. So with Notex, um, you, you have a, a system that outlines these very recognizable categories. And then you have systems that come afterwards that are have been made for healthcare, for example, like uh, splints, uh, looking at the non-technical skills of scrub practitioners. Um, or systems looking at the skills of surgeons. And while you could say, well, you know, 
surgeons and scrub practitioners and nurses and doctors all work within healthcare. So why don't they need one system? You realize when you look at the the nuances of these systems that actually when you when you really dive into these non-technical skills, these practitioners use their skills very differently. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly why when we started our research, we wanted to know, well, you know, helicopter pilots are very different from fixed wing pilots. Sure, they 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 fly in the air and really is that where the similarity ends? Um, because if you look at the the aircraft, a helicopter can stop, it can hover, it can you know access very remote locations. And with that functionality, you have a whole range of different roles that a helicopter can undertake. So really helicopter pilots will have very different mission parameters compared to fixed wing pilots. And if no techs is, you know, are really very deeply ingrained in the fixed wing system. Helicopter operators use it as well. The question is, well, the question was for us, do helicopter pilots also use these behaviors exactly as Notex outlines them? Uh, And that's where we came in. Okay. And obviously more so down the the helicopter pilot route there with uh, Helinox then, but you're saying about, you know, non-technical skills around like leadership, communication, these sort of things as well. So what, what's the, the, the individual skills that you're really targeting to, you know, to, to focus on with Helinots and looking within regards to helicopter pilots? Sure. So I guess I kind of need to go into the, the design criteria uh, of Helinots a little bit with this, because okay. over many years of studies, we developed a really broad and uh, unusable framework of non-technical skills and elements and nuances of how these pilots and these technical crew, uh, the paramedics and the winch operators use their non-technical skills. Massive list. We're talking, you know, 30, 40 different elements. So when when we decided, you know, coming through the, the PhD, doing these studies, looking at their skills really in depth and understanding that these guys use their skills very differently to, to the fixed wing pilots, uh, much as surgeons would use their skills differently to nurses or, you know, other other practitioners within healthcare, uh, we 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 needed to to look at reduce these uh, this massive list of elements into a very usable uh, system. So there was there was a kind of several design criteria criteria excuse me involved in, in that process, which was uh, firstly that it was an industrial and academic collaboration. So with Helinots, we really wanted to make Helinots uh, not just something that academics come up with in, you know, an ivory tower that no one's going to bother to look at because what do academics know about flying a helicopter? But we wanted it to be a collaboration between our academic expertise and the pilots and the trainers and the technical crews expertise. Mm-hmm. And that way we can come together and make something very usable. Um, and part of that process was to take, as I said, this massive list of, you know, 40 different elements and really boil it down into these core skills. So it's not saying that, you know, any skills we didn't include pilots don't use, but really the most critical skills to the role. Um, so also part of that, that, uh, process is, you know, trying to remove overlap between elements, trying to, uh, make sure that this is a pragmatic and usable system. No one's going to take 40 different behaviors and, you know, assess somebody on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that many of these elements weren't observable. So with a behavioral market system, you need observable or inferable behaviors. Otherwise you, you don't know they're happening. So if it's a very cognitive process, you need to know that they're doing it. So 
for example, situation awareness, a cognitive non-technical skill, I need to see that somebody is looking around the cockpit or comprehending by reacting to something in their environment. Um, so what, when we boiled it down, what we arrived at was um, a five category model, which made up, uh, which was made up of communication in one category, uh, leadership and teamwork in another, and I can sort of go into why two non-technical skills are in the same category there situation awareness, decision-making and cognitive readiness. And across that, I think we have about 17 different elements. Now I'll probably count them as I go because I've probably just given the wrong number there, but within communication, we've got exchanging information, giving instructions and providing feedback. And again, within each of those elements, you have positive and negative behavioral markers. So, you know, there's three levels of depth to this. In leadership and teamwork, we broke it down into guiding task behaviors, sharing task activities, monitoring other crew members, and setting and maintaining a crew atmosphere. Situation awareness, we split into a three-tier um, model, kind of like uh, Ensley's situation awareness model, gathering information, comprehending informational elements, anticipating future states. Decision-making was uh, split into identifying and selecting options and reviewing courses of action. And cognitive readiness, this really unique category, was broken down into utilizing preparedness, maintaining resilience and applying problem solving. Mm -hmm. So uh, five categories, I think 17 elements, I should probably know that. And then within that you have for each element, five or six positive and negative behavioral markers. So how do we know someone's exchanging information? Well, you know, they are noticing things happening and communicating it with the, the pilots or vice versa kind of thing. Uh, so, so essentially, those are the skills and their elements. Cool, cool. So I was going to just ask around that because you're saying there's uh, positive and negative, uh, you know, markers on each of those elements as well. So it's just like, how how do you how do you rate that, or how do you score that? And be like, right, they're you know effective communication, or you know they're not communicating in an effective manner to the pilot or whatever it is. So most behavioral mark systems, in fact, I think all behavioral mark systems that I've come across, come with a rating scale. Um, these are behavioral, behaviorally anchored rating scales, generally from not applicable or, you know, one to five, basically in a not applicable category. Mm -hmm. So you have varying degrees of how, how well, or how often this behavior is undertaken, uh, five, let's say being very good in Helinot's, uh, instance and one being poor or suboptimal. You also have a not applicable category. So uh, not all of Helinot's behaviors need to be utilized all the time. It doesn't make sense on a routine flight for someone to utilize uh, very high levels of resilience, for example. So um, there's generally a rating scale and you can either rate it categorically. So we can say, okay, how's this individual's decision-making based on these behavioral markers, based on these elements, or you can get really in depth and rate each uh, elements. So within decision-making, how is there, you know, how are they selecting options? Are they selecting appropriate options? Are they reviewing the course of action? And then through this, these numerical values, like very good. So, you know, the, the behavior optimally enhances flight or operational safety. Um, we can then get a sort of numerical value of how they're performing. And then you can sort of see if there's something very strange going on. So let's say you've got a four to five candidate across all these categories. And suddenly with their you know, communication, they drop down to two or one and they're not sharing information properly. And then you can really highlight these problem areas. Okay. Okay. That's interesting, dude. So with that then, 
how's that getting fed back to you guys? Is that with regards to uh, like post session debriefs within it, or is it forming part of a, a training framework for those guys afterwards to go forward? So this is where it gets a little bit complicated on my end because okay. I am more in the development of the tool phase. Okay. And while I while I develop the tool, I package it up into a handbook and I do the research that underpins it all. It then gets handed over to the operator, mm -hmm. and the operator really chooses how to use it. Now in our handbooks, you know, I've got one here. Um, it's all packaged up nicely, and we have instructions for users and general advice on it. You know, use it post-flight for a debrief, um, use it as an educational basis, but really it's up to the operators how they how they use the system. We're just yeah. sort of developing the framework. What we do recommend is that it's not used in a threatening manner at all. So you can't wave you know, your Helinots handbook in someone's face and say, oh, you've done this wrong or this right, but it's used as a sort of just a guide uh, and something that can really help. Is it with regards to each marker? So if you say you had someone who was performing at a four or a five and then slipped to a one or a two for communication stuff, is it very much just left up to the operators you say there to deliver that feedback and how they go about delivering that? Or have you guys helped with that as well to say, look, you know, this is probably the best way you can say like, right, this is where you've slipped up, this is how you need to pick it up into the next level? Yeah, I mean, it is very much down to the operators and their CRM trainers and assessors. So okay. um, while certainly I have, you know, a just having finished the thesis, I've got this huge collection of information about why there may be problems. Uh, and if an operator was to approach me saying we have this problem, I'd be more than happy to take a look at the data and try and understand why that might be the case. Um, certainly, we, we have created a model of factors that influence non-technical skills, uh, which I can talk to you a little bit about if you're interested. Yeah, that really definitely. breaks down all the reasons why someone might fail on a CRM assessment. Mm -hmm. But we can't dictate to operators how they use the system. We can't dictate to them uh, you know, how they debrief it, how they use it to train. It's really our offering to the industry saying, look, this is the research and this is what's come of the research and take Helinots and do with it as you please just you know please make it as valid as possible nice nice dude all right cool that sounds interesting so let's let's take a little dive down that route then you were saying about like you know the potential with guys for filling the crm stuff and those maps around that can we just take a deep dive into that all sure yeah of course so one of the questions that i was very interested in across uh, all of this was essentially you know why do people fail uh their crm assessments why do errors happen and what sorts of factors lead to non-technical skills lapses so while going through this whole process of understanding how do you use your non-technical skills you know how do paramedics handle a casualty how do you know which operators deal with you know contrasting information from the front and the back how does you know the how do the pilots deal with you know minimal weather conditions mm -hmm. i wanted to know what sorts of factors made them struggle. So across uh, across all of my PhD studies, actually, I always included an aspect, you know, towards the end of the study, a separate 15, 20 minutes of probing into which factors influence your non-technical skills, what makes you good at situation awareness, what makes you terrible at communication. Uh, and over, over these studies, with more and more information coming in from focus groups, from surveys, from interviews, we, we started to, to really iron out this model. So we broke these factors down into uh, environmental factors. So the type of aircraft you're in, uh, bad weather, PPE, whether, whether the protective equipment was uncomfortable, 
um, all the way through to environmental factors, like whether the base was noisy at night, you know, mission related factors. So was there fuel in the, in the vicinity? Um, was there time pressures? Uh, what was the perceived risk versus reward? So were they launching to go in bad weather to, to pick up someone who had, you know, broken a nail versus somebody who had actually seriously injured themselves and they they really needed to attend to it mm-hmm. um other things like you know uh, facilities in, in, in the mission areas or somewhere to land things like that so workload factors things like task saturation are there t- too many things going on at once um are there too many taskings in a day um procedural things like you know adhering to sop does you know the sop in this instance make the job harder or easier there was a whole range of factors related to individuals. So stress, uh, we broke that down into home-based stress and job-based stress. So for example, if you're having an argument with a spouse, uh, does that affect your performance when you come into work the next day? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the state of the industry in downturn is the fact that, that redundancies are happening. Is that going to impact your non-technical skill performance? Uh, things like fatigue, your individual experience, your assertiveness and confidence in a crew. Um, And then related to those individual factors, we have a whole range of crew related factors. So you have things like how well you know your crew and Mm -hmm. whether that's a positive or a negative, because you'd think knowing your crew's skills is a is a significant uh, positive. But that was not always the case. You know, often it was, but sometimes knowing your crew very well meant that you were more relaxed to them in an aircraft. Um, things like, you know, crew members having different priorities, the paramedics, uh, a very interesting, uh, quotation we have from a paramedic was that his priority is always to take the casualty to a hospital and the pilot's priority is always to get the aircraft back to base. Now that's not always the case, but he says they have to, uh, argue about that a little bit. And when I say argue, I don't really mean they have to argue about it, but they have to debate on that. Yeah. And really then the best option comes to the surface. So having a different priorities, again, seems like a negative, but actually in many instances was a positive because it allowed the crews to discuss the appropriate course of action. Things like crew conflict, nearly always a negative, uh, apart from strangely after the conflict when everyone, you know, hugged it out kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, the state of other skills. So another category of factors that influence non-technical skills, how good are your other skills? So if your communication is terrible, then uh, your teamwork is going to be terrible. If your situation is terrible, then your decision-making is going to be terrible. But if you're really good at CRM, if you train a lot, then these skills should be in pretty good order, which means the other skills tend to be in good order. Um, And finally, there was some uh, factors related to, to organizations, basically. So the structure of the organization, the internal lines of communication with an organization, just sorts of factors that I think a lot of people feel within within their organization. So those are that was our sort of model of factors that influence non-technical skills. Now, over these studies, we wanted to really look at which skills they influence. So again, this is diving really, really deep down the rabbit hole at this point, but we wanted to see, do some of these factors just influence situation awareness? do some of these factors just influence cognitive readiness? And then within that, do some of these factors only influence SAR versus Mm. offshore transport? So um, a a table that I put together buried deep in the appendices of my thesis, I've actually broken it down based on that. Um, 
But that's, like I said, that's going really deep into the data. That's interesting to hear, though, dude. But, you know, life doesn't happen in a bubble. And like you say, there's so many factors that can play into that as well. Uh, both Absolutely. environmental and just from cognitive standpoint as well. So things like, I don't know, um, I could say I'm guessing things like environmental factors, like if you've got like just awful, awful weather conditions and you're out in search and rescue and that, I'm guessing that's going to play a big part with regards to situational awareness as well, just constant monitoring, you know, things. Of course, it's going to change the decisions you make. It's going to affect how you communicate with people. So I think it's very useful to really categorize and and create a taxonomy of these sorts of things. And I mean, if I had more time, if I had infinite time and infinite funding, then this would have been, and it still may be an accompaniment to Helinots, which is, uh, okay, let's say in the very rare instance that a behavior is is very negative. You, you've not done well in your Helinots assessment. Then let's let's sit down with this diagnostic tool and let's trace it back. What were the factors that led to this? You know, were you were you tired? Were you stressed? And it, you can you can just sit someone down and say, you know, why did you why did you act like that? And I'm not sure that that's the best way to work out what the the reasoning is. But maybe if you sit someone down with a diagnostic tool. And you run them through these sorts of things and they can go, ah, well, you know what? I am kind of stressed. And there was a lot of time pressure in that. And I was just, I really wasn't, you know, I wasn't on the same wavelength as the winch operator today. And I don't know why that is. And maybe he and I should have a debrief and a chat about this kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. maybe with a diagnostic tool in front of them, we can really work out, okay, so something went wrong. Why did it go wrong? Right. And then from there, the next stage is, how do we then remedy that? Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Dude. That is interesting. I mean, it's interesting to see from like, especially from the search and rescue standpoint as well, just how they take that information, you know, go forward and run with it as well. Um, I want to pull it back just briefly, just with regards to some of the stuff on Helenots for you, Oliver, because obviously you were saying prior to running with Helenots, um, a lot of guys within helicopter space was using uh, Notex, which is very much like say a primary base towards fixed wing. So yeah, how was it, you know, going in and having those uh, conversations with the guys within commercial and search and rescue as well and being like, listen, okay, I know you've used this, but this is our concept we're looking here and getting that buy-in from those guys to switch that over. Yeah. So uh, I worked quite closely with uh, two operators, uh, three, three operators, and we had, you know, some sort of, guest operators came in and helped out with various studies. So uh, we have a few over the whole thing, but I I sort of got to know the the CRM, the the crew resource management training, the non-technical skills training of three of them, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And two of those three used Notex variations. So based on Notex, slightly tailored for their operational needs. Uh, One of them had an internal sort of system Again, it's non-technical skills based. It's not going to be totally different from Notex or ANTS or Splints or any behavioral market system you look at. It's just going to be fine tailored to their needs. Um, but coming in, I think there was a general feeling that everything happens and all the research happens in the fixed wing world and, and everyone's interested in you know the fixed wing pilots and what they do. And I think when we first started to look at this, what I was taken aback by was an appetite for this research from the operators. So mm-hmm. w- and when I say from the operators, I really mean from the pilots. Yeah. So they wanted to be heard. They wanted their CRM to be talked about. And 
what positive reception we had from the pilots was amplified tenfold when we turned our attention to the technical crew, the winch paramedics and the winch operators, who, uh, if research is all focused on fixed wing pilots and then somewhat, you know, a tiny proportion of that is research is focused on helicopter pilots, then we're talking like very little is focused on the technical crew who are absolutely essential members of the crew that, you know, mm. They, they attend to the casualty, they do the winching operation, you know, their role is absolutely critical. Uh, and I'm telling you, you could probably go through the literature on, on them in, in a day. You know, there's very little on them because no one's turned that focus to them. So when we did approach the helicopter pilots about the stuff, the, the reception was good. But when, you know, they wanted to be heard, they wanted their experiences to be shared, and they wanted lessons and CRM to be developed based on their roles. But when we turned to the technical crew, these guys hadn't even been spoken to about this kind of stuff. You know, they're being taught as if they were pilots. Yeah. So the reception was, you know, brilliant. We were, we were, uh, re I was truly blown away by how supportive the search and rescue community were with this work. That's awesome, dude. That's awesome to hear. And like I say it's almost like, with regards to like the, the guys in the back, like your paramedic and your winch crew and stuff like that, who just get almost shoehorned into just like, all right, we'll make it fit for the, the same uh, stuff we're doing for the pilots for you guys. And it's almost like se separate skill sets as well. Um, yeah. yeah. So, and I'm, I imagine those guys are, you know, waiting with open arms for you guys to come in and start doing some work with them as well. It's cool to hear. It was, it was interesting actually. My first uh, trip to, to a search and rescue base and we were sort of welcomed in and uh the pilots very confidently sort of took us about and showed us everything um and the technical crew uh you know they said hello and all that but they sort of weren't really involved in this show and tell process you know this is the helicopter and this is what we do and all that kind of stuff and it was very interesting uh in hindsight to see that uh because obviously to them it must have seemed like oh you know people coming in speaking to pilots and you know all being very pilot centric uh so it was really really good to turn the attention to them because the benefit that our conclusions have had from the technical crew is, you know, it's really, really important. And it's helped mm -hmm. Helinots become what it is because originally Helinots was just pilot centric. Yeah. So with the technical crew's input, we have something that is so much broader and there's so much more uh, quality uh, and scope within the search and rescue system uh, that, that all the crews can learn from. So I think that that's another important aspect of Helinots that this is something that the crews, you know, technical crew can bring data into and the pilots can learn from that and use that data, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think that's a really, just having that collaboration back and forth would be, you know, fantastic within those crews as well. And I was going to ask you as well, Oliver, because obviously you're saying very much focusing around uh, rotary wing aviation guys here within the helicopter community as well. Do you think there's going to be, you know, the, you see use of helinauts outside of this, you know, this world of rotary aviation, you know, and its application for fervor? Yeah. So w helinauts has been very well received within within the, the sector. Uh, one organization, uh, one helicopter operator is already adopting helinauts, uh, amalgamating it for their needs. And basically, I think, uh, working with it, uh, in, in one area of their operation. So, mm -hmm. which is, you know, from a researcher's perspective, that's great news. It means we've done something right. Um, but one of the very interesting things when, when we first bought Helen Arts and it got some media attention and all that kind of stuff 
was that I was contacted by people in separate domains of high risk. So, you know, police officers, and I was contacted by lifeboat crews, mm -hmm. uh, paramedics, and even people from business who say, this is a really cool idea. Um, you know, behavioral Marxisms, and I think, well, it's not my idea. It's just that we really, you know, sort of promoted uh, Helenots. This is a really great idea, and especially this cognitive readiness stuff, because I think my staff or my crew would be far more effective if we knew about cognitive readiness, if we trained cognitive readiness skills. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you had this really extended conversation on cognitive readiness with Andy, yeah. um, who is doing, you know, really, really forward thinking, groundbreaking work in that area. His plans are fantastic. Um, but, you know, cognitive readiness, you know, it can be broken down into many different aspects as, as Andy uh, talked about, but some of these aspects are certainly skills and skills can be trained. Yeah. Um, so when someone from, you know, when someone from a police team looks at Helenots and sees these cognitive readiness behaviors, they go, well, we, we solve problems as well, you know, and we, you know, we could, we could train that because it's mm -hmm. a skill and, you know, resilience Well, maybe, maybe there is a bit of individual variability or a lot of individual variability with resilience, but seeing these behavioral markers, we can see how someone might become more resilient, you know, and we can sure. focus on those sorts of things. So there is tremendous scope for something like Helinots to be used in different sectors and in different domains and in different scenarios. But it always comes back to that same point that I made at the beginning, which is that, yes, non-technical skills are generic. And it's brilliant that uh, operators from any organization can recognize the utility of this system to their own roles. But the data is very specific to these helicopter pilots and these winch crews. So yeah. uh, again, well, I, I think what this might do is it might provide a platform for these other sectors to start thinking about cognitive readiness and these sorts of skills, you know, and maybe they can use that as the basis or perhaps even have their own, you know, variation. You know, you could have helinots for, you know, tactical police units, for example. Maybe you wouldn't want to call it helinots anymore, but yeah. you get the idea. Okay, Oliver. So obviously, you know, you've highlighted there that, you know, they've got a wide range of implementation with regards to Helenauts and the process around that, not only within organizations, but within different sectors as well. Obviously, you've spent a lot of time on the research here. Where would you like to see this research going next? And what's what's really got your interest within this? So I'm very, very interested in cognitive readiness. Non-technical skills are, you know, fascinating, particularly, you know, some of the, the nuances of it that we've looked at, but um, I really see going forward cognitive readiness research as, as you know, a, a really important area to, to look at, um, particularly as we get into sort of ironing out what exactly is cognitive readiness, is it a non-technical skill, how does it relate to other non-technical skills, is it a concept aside, you know, as as Andy mentioned, this is a multifaceted concept. So when we look at this, the skills that make up cognitive readiness, you know, are they trainable? Is there a threshold at which someone can't, you know, be resilient? Um, or can we take someone who isn't resilient and can we make them resilient? And mm. I think that behavioral markers and, you know, observational mechanisms are really important because that's how we, that's how we detect it. But there's also this other layer of, you know, looking at physiological measurements of things like cognitive readiness. So let's just take, you know, resilience, for example, you know, how do we know that we're training people correctly? And, you know, traditionally training is measured against four criteria. Um, it's measured against 
the reception of the people being trained. So that doesn't mean an awful lot. It means that someone comes out of the training saying, I like that, you know, yeah. again, what does that mean? Knowledge gain. So are people actually learning? And again, how does that paper learning transfer to real life? The third sort of pillar of assessing training is looking at um, looking at behavioral change. So that's where we've got our heli knots and our behavioral mark systems assessing whether people are actually changing their behaviors on the job. And, you know, that's important. And then a fourth criteria is uh, organizational change. So is an organization changing based on the, based on the, the, the training. And um, mostly these first three are ticked off quite nicely. And then organizational changes are really troublesome one because you need that training to sort of infiltrate various layers of management and things like that. But I think with cognitive readiness and let's say, you know, taking that example of resilience, we can add a fifth dimension to that, which is physiological change. Can we see through training? Can we evaluate training, not just based on behavioral observation, but on physiological change? Will, if I take this individual and I put them in a simulation and they fall to pieces, can I take them? Can I train them? Can I observe their behavior training? And then can I back that up with a physiological change? Because if that can be done, then we have validity in a very pure sense. You know, we know exactly that it is working beyond just a, an observational level. And I think that cognitive readiness uh, and the direction it's going in, I think there's plenty of room for that. So I think uh, in my mind, what comes next, what I'd like to do, I would like to do research to develop a taxonomy of behavioral um, observations of cognitive readiness. I want to know all the ways in which we can be, you know, resilient, all the ways we can, we can detect someone solving problems to a high standard, all the ways we can see someone is mentally prepared, and that uh, you know people are adaptable. I want to see these things and know and not note down how we can detect it in people. But then I want to cross-reference that against these physiological markers of cognitive readiness. So, what are we seeing happening on the inside? And you know, it is very similar to. And this is why it was so interesting to to meet with Andy Bell because you know the first time I met Andy, um, we shared or we still do share a lot of uh, a lot of ideas on, on the future directions of this concept and where this needs to go to become mm -hmm. something usable. Because I think once we have that, once we have that fifth pillar, you know, the physiological measurements, and we've done that work to, to create a robust concept that can be verified observationally and physiologically, uh, that's when training takes that's when training levels up that's when training becomes a whole different ball game because we can now look at it in various different ways and through various different lenses so that's where i'd like to go with cognitive readiness that's awesome dude. that would be really cool to see from like you say pairing that very much qualitative work with regards to looking at those skills backing it up with more quantifiable like markers as well in there as well and how they respond from a physiological standpoint that'd be awesome to see dude so yeah, I look forward to seeing some of that coming out from both of you guys. So, well, I um, hope so. I mean, I'm really, I, 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 of course, you know, research needs to be funded, and that's the yeah. challenge. And I think the the proposals that we're putting together, I think they are attractive to mm -hmm. to funders. Um, but it is really getting that buy-in and also coordinating because you know I want with with the proposals that that I put together, I I want you know a big collaboration here. You know, I don't just want psychologists. I want you know people from all ranges of fields. You know, I want people who are skilled in physiological measurement. I want trainers in search and rescue, but also trainers in the police force. I want a really big collaboration on this. So mm -hmm. it's also 
you know, a project and an exercise in coordinating this, this big thing and, and how it can all come together. So uh, fingers crossed that we'll get there. Definitely, definitely. I mean, if anyone's listening here right now, who's had some interest and in excitement sparked by Oliver here, you know, yeah, uh, on me. <laughs> I'll definitely take uh, all those contact details in a little bit, dude, so you guys can reach out and make things happen. Okay. Um, obviously, Oliver, you know, I've had a great chance to chat to you and obviously coming off the back of your PhD, you've done a ton of stuff with regards to your education and your development. Um, and it's one question I'm always interested to ask all my guests is just, you know, what, what do they engage in, you know, for their own education or, you know, to develop their skill sets as well. So on that, can you just give us a book, an app, or website you've personally found useful for that? I can give you two books. Oh, I like um, So, yeah, I know it's breaking the rules a little bit, but uh, for information on non-technical skills, mm -hmm. there is no better book than Safety at the Sharp End by Professor Rona Flynn um, and, and her colleagues. Uh, this is really uh, a bit of a Bible in, in the non-technical skills area, and this covers all the non-technical skills, and it covers all the things about behavioral markers and it's just this is the most cited book uh for me personally um just brilliant stuff um and i've got a, a, a copy and i think anyone who looks at non-technical skills will have their copy sort of ending up like destroyed and noted over and all that kind of stuff the other book i'd recommend is black box thinking by matthew syed and this uh it's funny because i i was into human factors before i found that book uh, and when I found that book, I was like, this is brilliant stuff. This guy is communicating it in a way that it needs to be communicated to a broader audience. So mm -hmm. uh, it's really talking about how, you know, healthcare can learn lessons from aviation, how aviation has a, has adjusted and adapted and learned to train non-technical skills and things like that. Um, so I really, really recommend Black Box Thinking as well. These are two books that basically everywhere I go, I'm handing out copies to friends and stuff like that. I'm sure they just sit on a shelf somewhere and everyone, you know, they just humor me a little bit, but those are the two I'd recommend. So man, two good resources there. I'll make sure I pop them in our show notes as well. Now, obviously Oliver has saying, it's been great to just, you know, chat to you, pick your brain on your research and that and see where things are going next. You know, if anyone's, as I've already alluded to listening in, you know, wants to contact you to find out a bit more, potentially set up some sort of collaborative work, you know, what's the best way they can do that? Uh, so the, probably one of the best ways to get in contact with me is through LinkedIn. Um, that seems to be the way that, uh, I get in contact with most people these days. Um, if you contact me on LinkedIn, then, you know, happy to talk about research, happy to talk about any work with, with Axiom and things like that. And any advice or ideas, I'm always up for a chat. Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn. It's just Oliver Hamlet. Um, or you can drop me an email at Oliver at axiomhumanfactors.com um and yeah i will get back to you there as well that is perfect you'll make a note of that into our show notes as well dude and then yeah i'll make sure that's all in there with your resources well dude you know oliver you know thank you once again mate um it's crazy to think we're in the same city but this is the first time i've had the opportunity to chat dude and it's been it's been great to actually pick your brain you know and find out a bit more about you as well mate no thank you very much i you know i, I appreciate the interest in, in the work and it's always great for me to to talk about it and as, as you can tell i get very excited about it so it's uh, great fun for me perfect man perfect anyway dude thank you very much again oliver okay, take care buddy okay bye-bye thank you hi guys really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the monarch team performance podcast i just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show 
We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche-specific podcast. To continue supporting us, can I ask you to do me a simple favor? First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me, and please share the show. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people.